We come back to Jonah, and we are in the third chapter today. And uh, what a great little book this book is of the prophet Jonah. But what's the story? It's a basic story we all know, a reluctant prophet who doesn't want to do what God has called him to do. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh uh, to proclaim this message that God has given him. So he runs. He flees from the presence of God, from his country, from the place of his countrymen, according to the flesh. He flees from the place of God's presence, and he tries to go to Tarshish, this place of distance from uh, God's revelation, he thinks, and to the, from the people of God. He runs, and of course, God doesn't just let him walk away, does he? He doesn't just let him go. He uh, pursues him, sends a storm after him. In fact, the scripture says, throws a storm at him, a storm which puts his own life in danger, but also the life of those who are with him, all those on board that ship are in danger. And there are many truths that we can think about this because Jonah immediately uh, knows it's his own responsibility, it's his own doing, it's God pursuing him, bringing judgment on him. He says this quite openly, the lot falls to him anyway, they already suspect it, but he owns up to it. There will be no saving from this storm unless you throw me to the sea. Unless you give me over to the judgment of God, there'll be no rescue for you. Now, we already see there a little picture of the gospel, don't we? That our salvation comes through the death of another, one far greater than Jonah. Our Lord himself says this, right? One greater than Jonah is here. One greater than Jonah is the one who by his death brings us life. But here is just a type of it, just a little type of what Christ will accomplish in that Jonah by his being thrown into the judgment and into the water, delivers those around him. There are many other truths that we could find, but it all points to this great salvation, this great work of God. Jonah offered up to spare others, yes, but there's a greater story of a work Jonah has to do, isn't there? It isn't just saving a few sailors, a few mariners on a boat. He's been called to go to a great city, great in terms of its size, great in terms of its wickedness, great in terms of its opposition to God and to the people of God, he's called to go. And so he goes only after the events we've been looking at. We're going to look at today his being called again to Nineveh. But he gets thrown over and he thinks it's the end. It should be the end. It's deserving that it be the end. But God is gracious. God hears the call of Jonah from the depths of Sheol, from the depths of judgment, if you will. He cries out. We don't, as we said, get that prayer. We get a prayer in the belly of the fish in which he reflects back on the prayer that he gave as he sank lower and lower into death. He says, I cried out to you from those depths, and you heard me. You answered my prayer. You delivered me. What a strange deliverance, isn't it? In this sea creature, this Great fish, this monstrous fish is really how Jesus words it. This great fish prepared by God beforehand for this purpose, to swallow and deliver Jonah, to save Jonah, to be an instrument of salvation for Jonah. This fish swallows him, and Jesus says, it's like my story. When you look to Jonah, you see a sign of what I have come to do. For as Jonah went into death to save others, he's in the, entombed in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, and then he comes bursting forth 
not of his own power, but of the vomiting of the fish, delivered again to life. Well, that's the story of Jesus, isn't it? Dies for the sake of others, not for his own sin, but for the sins of others. He dies a a death counted amongst the transgressors. He dies, he is buried three days, three nights. He bursts forth himself. This by his own power, right? If he lays it down, he may take it up again. And death can't hold him besides because he is without sin. Yes, he went to Calvary's cross bearing the sins of others, but he himself is sinless, the spotless Lamb of God. Death has no claim upon him. But that doesn't mean he doesn't go into the grave for a time as Jonah was in the belly of the fish. And so he comes out of that, right, with resurrected life, And they both have another similarity that we're looking at as the key point of the story, which is, we looked at it a little bit last week with the sign of Jonah, which is they have a mission to fulfill. Jonah, to take this gospel message to Gentiles. Now, it's not the fullness of the gospel that we have revealed in Christ, but it's a message of the coming judgment of God against sin, which is the underpinning underpinning of the message of the gospel. And what we find here is Jonah is going to take this salvation to one city, of one group of Gentiles. But Christ rises to also participate in a mission, the mission, if you will, the redemptive mission of God to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles everywhere, every tongue, tribe, and nation. That's where the gospel's going. In fact, as we said it last week, quoting from Paul, he tore down the wall of divide between Jew and Gentile. So again, the point here that is, is for us to see is there are many parallels that Christ points to Jonah and says, if you want to know what I'm doing, look to Jonah. Jonah, you've already accepted as a prophet of God and that his scripture is true, so look to it and you'll see what God is having me do. And so we come now to Jonah being spit out onto the shore and we wonder what's going to happen, so we want to read it. I know most of you probably know what's going to happen, but let's read it as if for the first time. So beginning there at verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I will tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in its extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil ways, And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. 
and he did not do it. Now, as we think about this text, I want us to look at three points today. First of all, Jonah's message. Second of all, Nineveh's repentance. And third, God's mercy. Now, beginning with Jonah's message, we need to start even prior to this because it's staggering that Jonah would go at all. I don't mean by Jonah's will that he would go. I mean by God's will that he would go. It's staggering that God doesn't just say, I saved you from the depths, Jonah. Go to the sidelines. I can't trust you to go anymore. Right? We can think of a time where Paul had an encounter with Mark where he said, I can't trust him. Send me to the sidelines. I'll, we'll have somebody else go with us. Why does God call Jonah again? Well, the answer is because it was God's will that Jonah be the one to go. As he said in the first chapter, it was Jonah's job to do. God has ordained Jonah to be the one to go. Jonah must go. Just as he rescued him from the pit, now he says, you're going to go. You're going to be my servant, my proclaimer, my preacher of this message. You're going to be the one to do it. Though you failed before, you will go. Now, there are some differences between what's proclaimed here and and chapter 1. Before he basically tells him what he's going to say in encapsulation of the message, here he says, go and preach the message that I will tell you. Go, and when you get there, I'll tell you what to say. Now, why does God work in this way, deal in this way? That's in the wisdom of God, right? He knows there's some reason to tell Jonah just this thing. Go, and when you get there or along the way, I'll then tell you what I want you to say. It's very much, I think, a test of faith. We can think about uh, Abraham. Get up from Ur of the Chaldees and go to a place that I will show you. He doesn't say, here's where you're going to go. He says, get up and go, and I'll show you where you're going to go. And one of the things that we say about Father Abraham was he was a man of faith. Abraham trusted God. He said, I'll get up and I'll go wherever you tell me to go. And I'll trust it as God. I should go where you want me to go. I'll trust your your goodness and your plan. I'll trust that your will is far better than mine. If you tell me to get up and go, then I'm going to do it. And Jonah here says, first of all, I've learned that withstanding God doesn't come to a good end. But if you want me to go, I'll go. Now, that is not to say that Jonah is perfectly willing or submissive here. right? Jonah's still got a little fight in him, a little argument in him. We'll see that. He hasn't fully learned the lesson. Sometimes it takes us a long time to learn our lessons as well. So we shouldn't deal too harshly with Jonah, but we should recognize that by now he should be at a point where he says, God knows better than I do. I'm going to trust God. He goes out of obedience at the very least. He packs up and he goes up to Nineveh. And he goes to preach this message. He goes to preach this message. Now I want you to think of what else that the Lord says here. He says, I want you to go to Nineveh, that great city. And it is a great city. We said earlier, it's a city great in size and in wickedness. Our very first week in this was to talk about the wickedness, wasn't it, of Nineveh and of Assyria. It's a wicked, wicked place. It stands opposed to God and his people. That's why we believe Jonah didn't want to go. He didn't want to be any sort of instrument of grace to a people he hated. But the reality is it's great also in size. Now, there's a a phrasing given to us here in verse 3 that it's a great city, a a three-day journey in extent or in breadth, I think, uh, as been read. Now, in in my uh, scripture here, it says in extent, and it's got that italicized, which you know in the tradition of the King James, the italicized words are not in the original Hebrew. 
So those aren't there. It just says a three-day journey in the original text. Now, scholars have, have debated this because the Jews often did say things are a one-day journey or a two-day journey or a three-day journey, and it might mean the length of time to get there, but that doesn't seem right because Nineveh was more than three days away. Even if you want to use that as figurative language, it's so far uh, from the reality of the distance that he would have to travel that it doesn't really make sense. It seems that the way these translators have looked at it is right, that he's saying it's a three-day journey to walk from one side of Nineveh to the other side of Nineveh. That is a big city, a big city, one of the great cities of the ancient world, both in wickedness and size. And so Jonah's supposed to go on this mission, and he's supposed to, to go and, and preach a message and to go, I don't know where, throughout Nineveh, to the center of Nineveh, to the king of Nineveh, I don't know. He's supposed to go and preach this message. Jonah should know because God said he would tell him. And Jonah travels one day's journey or less into the city. That's what it tells us. He began to enter the city on the first day's walk. So he hasn't even gotten to day two. So he's not even gotten halfway into the city. And he puts down his stakes and he says, here's where I'm going to proclaim the message. And what does he cry out? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now that is a pretty definitive statement it would seem. In 40 days God is going to rain destruction down on this city. Now, is it possible there was more to the message that he preached than that? Certainly it's possible. We can look back just at Jonah on the ship where he talks about uh, that he is a Hebrew and that uh, he worships the God who created the sea and the land. And we realize that he said more than is recorded there because it says in the very next verse that uh, they knew that he was running from the presence of God for he had told them this. So there are things that are not always recorded. But I think the theology of Jonah makes us wonder if he did have more to this message, if he was just preaching what is basically the shortest prophetic message that there is in scriptures, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Did he say more than that? He may not have. He may have, certainly, but he may not have. And why do we say that? Well, if Jonah seems to be enthusiastic about what God is going to do, it would make sense that he would want to say more. But we're going to see in the fourth chapter, Jonah is still miserable at the prospect that God would save the Ninevites. He hates the thought that God would do this. In fact, what does the first verse of chapter 4 tell us, just as a, a word of preview? It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry at the work of God, at the will of God being fulfilled. He's displeased and angry. So he's already in a not a very good place, right? Theologically, it's a very bad place to be parked where you're saying, I hate what God is doing, I'm displeased with what God is doing, and I'm angry about it. That's a terrible place to be. But it also tells us he's not going there preaching, hoping for the salvation of any of the Ninevites. He's gone there out of obedience, but not in joy, not in hope, not with the desire that this message he's going to proclaim will have any positive effect at all. He goes there preaching a message of destruction, hoping for destruction. How else can we understand it? That he'd be angry that they repent. How else can we understand that he says, I knew you were going to do this, God. I knew this was your point. I knew that you were going to be merciful. I knew it all along. Isn't this what I said to you the first time I fled? That this is exactly what you were going to do? Isn't this why I didn't want to be a part of it? So my friends, as we see this and think about it for a moment, 
it's very easy to see that Jonah might have just conveniently left off the parts about repentance. Maybe God didn't give them to him, but it's certainly not here. All he tells them is, in 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, we're going to come back to this Hebrew word because it's really, really interesting. But in 40 days, your city will be overturned. The idea we get here is thrown over, destroyed. Thrown over in the same way Jonah was thrown over the side of the boat. In yet 40 days, this will happen. So it doesn't seem like Jonah would have been interested in saying a whole lot more than that. It might have been that he worded it in just the way that God told him to and God's purpose was in this. Or it may be that, that he's trying to frame it and leave off some. Who knows what he's trying to do. But whatever the case is, all we have recorded is this message of certain and impending judgment. Which has troubled people for many, many years. Because they say Jonah doesn't say it based on if you repent this can be avoided. He says in 40 days God will bring down this city. They say how does that not make Jonah a false prophet? Doesn't the scripture say that anything a prophet prophesied and it does not come to pass, he shall be called a false prophet and taken out and stoned to death? This is a bit of a dilemma until you look at the wording that Jonah uses, which we'll come back to. So again, we have here something interesting. Jonah goes out and he preaches. He doesn't have to like it. He should like it. He should have joy in the message of God and the work of God. But Jonah goes out and preaches a coming destruction, a coming destruction. And what's interesting is, for all of us who have heard the gospel, it's the underpinning of that gospel, isn't it? You all are sinners. I'm a sinner. Unworthy of God's grace, unworthy of God's mercy, worthy only of judgment. In Adam, that's what we are sure to find. Wednesday night, as we looked at Pilgrim's Progress and talked about those four righteousnesses of Christ, three that are not available to us, one that is... As we begin talking about that, we're talking about the active obedience of Christ and how we're taken out of Adam and put into Christ in Christ's perfect obedience. And the thing about this is, that's the whole message of the gospel. That we're no longer saved or not saved based on what we did, but we are saved based on what another did, what Christ did. We stand in His perfect obedience and righteousness. Our judgment, yes, for our sin. Yes, we could also say for Adam's sin, but for our own sin as well. But our salvation only for Christ's righteousness, only for what Christ has done, what Christ availed. So the underpinning of the message of the gospel is this same message of judgment. That all sinners will fall into the hands of an angry God. And judgment is certain. Now, there's a rest of that story, isn't there? Uh, That is the mercy of God. For all who cry out in faith, God saves by His grace through faith, through the work of Christ. That is that flip side, if you will, to the gospel. The judgment, the righteous judgment of God, yes, and the loving mercy of God. And it doesn't seem that Jonah talked about that flip side. It doesn't seem that he talked about it at all. But it does seem that he withstands what God is doing still to say, I'm not happy about God's salvation of these people, which means that Jonah knows even less than the pagan sailors that he was sailing with, who said, God, we recognize that you do as you please. Jonah hasn't understood that message yet. It's not Jonah's job to decide for God. God does as he pleases. And that brings us to our second point, because if we understand Nineveh, we would be surprised that Jonah would meet with any success at all in this journey, in this mission. 
You might actually think this is much like the mission given to Isaiah. Isaiah is uh, called into the presence of the Lord. Right? He goes into the temple and he sees the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe fills the temple and around him are angels. And he hears about a mission. Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. What's the mission? Go preaching to a generation who having ears will not hear, having eyes will not see. Preach to them a message they will not respond to. Preach, 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 much like Noah did, basically, right? Preach to a generation that will have nothing to do with the message. How long, O Lord? How long would you have me do this? A month, two months? Until the cities are utterly laid waste. No hope. It could very well be that this is exactly what was thought of here. Jonah would go and proclaim a message they're not going to receive it, although Jonah knows that's not what's going to happen. But it wouldn't surprise us if we know the Assyrians to think that might happen. They were people who hated God, fought against His people. These were a people who you can't even imagine would repent with any earthly understanding of it. And yet what happens is astounding. They repent. They repent. Now, oftentimes people talk about the revival at Nineveh. That's not the right term, is it? A revival is when God's people right, become aware of what is happening, return to the Lord with renewed spiritual vigor. That is revival, awakening. Awakening is what we're talking about here. People who have not known God are made aware of His glory and His presence and His judgment and cry out for His grace. That's what we see here. But if you think about it for just a moment, even though the text doesn't say that there is any hope in, in terms of what he's preaching of a repentance and a salvation available to the people, the mercy of God not mentioned as far as we can tell by Jonah, they begin to wonder if there couldn't be mercy with God. Somehow they either hope for it or they have come to know it in some way, maybe God planting this in their hearts, who knows exactly how this happens. Maybe they heard some of the words of some previous preacher that they're constructing together by the grace of God. Whatever it is, they come to wonder because One of the most important things is given to us in verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God. That's the key right there, isn't it? Because we know this. The scriptures tell us that Abraham believed and it was counted unto him for righteousness. The first sign of God changing our heart is that we believe what he says. We believe it. We are convicted by its truth, its veracity. We know that God is not a liar and that what He says must come to pass. And by the way, that also means that even though we called our first point Jonah's message, because Jonah is the proclaimer of it, it's not really Jonah's message at all, is it? It's God's message. God is the one who gave this word to Jonah to proclaim. And Jonah proclaims it on behalf of the Lord And the people understand that because they don't say they believe the word of Jonah. It says they believed the word of God. And it isn't just that they believed it and knew we're in danger here. But they acted with the fruits of repentance. The fruits of repentance. What does that mean? Well, look at what they did. They fasted. When you're so upset, so so under a burden of weight, you ever been to the point where you just don't feel like eating? This is one of the things that we see with them. They say, we're not going to eat. We're going to proclaim a fast. That gives them time to pray. They put on sackcloth. Now, this is important. These are popular ways of showing repentance. But look at what it says, from the greatest to the least of them. This is not a salvation of an individual or two. This is not a repentance of a family. This is not a repentance of a few people. This is a citywide repentance. Does that mean every single person 
was truly repenting? Of course not. But it means it's a large enough number that you could rightly say everyone. Right? Just generally saying everyone. That you could say this. That all did this. At least went through the actions. Now we're given a a kind of summation of what happens in verse 5. So we'll know that this was an amazing moment. But look what it says in verse 6. The word of the Lord came to the king of Nineveh. Jonah probably had no access to him. Word gets back through other people, or maybe somebody says, there's this guy preaching, you need to hear what he's saying. Maybe much like Paul in the Areopagus, where somebody said, hey, you need to come up here to to Mars Hill, to the Areopagus, and and preach this message so we can hear it and evaluate it. Maybe like the wise men in Herod, they hear that they're going around the city and he wants to know more of this message. Bring them to me. We don't know exactly how it happened. The Scriptures doesn't, doesn't find that important for us to know. But what it does tell us is the king gets word of this. And what is his reaction? If there should be anybody most proud amongst the Ninevites, it should be the king. He sets the policy. He's the one that's dealt so wickedly with his enemies, dealt so wickedly with the people of God and turned so grievously from God. What will he do? Well, notice here in the Hebrew wordplay, the first thing it tells us he did is he arises. If you go back to week one, that was an important word in Jonah, isn't it? Arise and go up to Nineveh, and Jonah does what? Down, down, down. The captain comes to Jonah and says what? Arise, O sleeper. What does the Lord say? Go back to Nineveh. Arise and go to Nineveh. Right, so the instruction of God is always with the word arise. And what does the king do? He doesn't stay seated in his throne. He arises from his throne. Now, why would he do this? In opposition to God? In rebellion against God? Is he being high-handed to stand up and say, No, not in this city we won't. No, he arises from the throne to humiliate himself. He leaves his throne and does what? He sits in ashes. He trades his throne for ashes. That's not the only thing he does. If we want to understand better what the picture is, what does it say he does? He lays aside his robe. Now, we all know kings had uh, important robes and garments that showed that they weren't like everybody else, right? Uh, Often purple was an important dye in those days for those with uh, royalty, uh, you know, having a claim to royalty. They would wear purple because it was the most expensive dye. Wealthy people later began to take and use purple because they could afford to, and it made them feel like they were royal, even if they weren't. Purple was important. And so you can very well imagine the king of Nineveh might have had purple robes. Whatever it was, he takes them off. He says, in the presence of this great ruler, the God of all creation, the God that's been revealed to us, I will not wear anything that claims I have a high estate or any kind of glory before him. Now I'll leave my throne and go and sit in ashes. The lowest place of the lowest place. And instead of royal robes, I'll put on sackcloth. The very wardrobe of mourning. The very wardrobe of repentance. This is what I will do. And it's not just that he does this for himself personally, but he says, as far as I have authority, as far as I have influence as a king, I'm going to make this aware to all people. So we're going to make an edict, a proclamation. We are going to make a rule that will go throughout all of Nineveh, a decree. A decree is not a suggestion, is it? An edict is not a suggestion. It is a command. 
And here we have a command. And what is that command? Let neither man nor beast, herd, herd nor flock, taste anything. You don't eat and don't feed your animals. No mouth will be fed until we sort this out. And what is there that he's thinking? Don't drink water. Let them be covered, man and beast, with sackcloth. Cry mightily to God. Cry mightily to God. Even if repentance is not in your heart, you're going to act it. Now, that's not an argument for hypocrisy. But it is an argument to say the king is saying, we're not going to let anybody visibly disobey God and get away with it. I'm sure if you tried, you'd have been struck down and killed. Because they realize something that Jonah's already taught us. One person's sins can redound to others. Now, that's just the reality of it. Right? Judgment falls upon cities. Right? Things happen. And he says, we're not going to let anybody disobey the living God. Right? We're not going to let anyone do that visibly. He says that they will turn from their evil ways and from their violence that is in his hands. The way they've been living, the way they've been fighting, all the various things they've done, they will not do it. And why? Well, look at verse 9. For who can tell if God will turn and relent? That's not a definitive statement, is it? He's not saying, uh, we know for sure God will, will, will turn away and not do this judgment if we repent of our sins. He says, who can tell if that will happen? Maybe, just maybe, if we repent of our sin and we sit in invisible signs of sorrow, not because it's false, but because we are truly a sorrowful people, who knows that God might not look upon this and show us mercy. Now, we don't have any evidence Jonah taught that, but they seem to infer that it could happen, that it could happen. Now, I want to say this before we go to our final point, which we're going to close with. It's really interesting to think for a moment about what's happening here because uh, there's some important language that's used here about this whole thing. When you think about Jonah coming and preaching this message to these Gentiles that he didn't want saved, we mentioned a few weeks ago that that there are more than one types in this text. Jonah is a type of Paul, right, who takes the message to the Gentiles, the one who is to deliver the message to the Gentiles. There's the main type that Christ recognizes, that he is a type of himself. But there's another type in this text, too, that the New Testament plays on heavily, and that is that Jonah is a type of Peter. He's a type of Peter. Now, when we come to the New Testament, we see that Peter is named... Simon bar Jonah. Simon, the son of Jonah. Jesus calls him that. Right now, we might automatically assume that his father was named Jonah. But over and over again, there are interesting overlaps between the story of Peter and the story of Jonah. Some that are so significant, it's impossible to to miss them. Like, for instance, Peter is the one who God calls to take the gospel to Caesarea. Right? To the place of the Gentiles the place that represents more than any other place in the region, the rule of the Gentiles in that region. Where is he at when he receives that call? Joppa, the very place that Jonah first flees to. He's on Simon the Tanner's house rooftop praying when he receives this message to go, uh, when a person comes to go with them. And how does that message come? Through a vision of a sheet with all kinds of unclean animals upon it, to his recognition, And it says, take, kill, and eat. And Peter says what? No, Lord. I would never do this. I would never eat what is unclean. And God's response is, do not call unclean that which I have called clean. Right? 
clearly a message that Peter begins to infer means the Gentiles. When this opportunity comes to go to Caesarea and preach the gospel to Gentiles, you are not to relent from that. You are not to withstand God in doing that. You are to go. Now, that's clearly part of the message here, isn't it? As he tells him this. And so he gets up and he goes. And he says, normally, you know, as he defends this later, I would not go into the home of a Jew. Excuse me, of a Gentile. A Jew would not go into the home of a Gentile. But I recognize that you were calling me. God was calling me to do this. And I go and I begin to preach. Now, you remember Jonah preached a short message, the Bible records. It's the shortest message of judgment we have of one of the prophets preaching. A short message. And almost despite himself, Salvation comes to these Gentiles in Nineveh. What happens with Peter? He's not sure he should go in. He's convinced God must be telling me to go in. He goes in and he preaches. And in the middle of his sermon, what happens? Before he's even finished the sermon, the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles in the same way, Peter says, that the Holy Spirit fell upon us at Pentecost. In other words, I didn't have to preach the fullness of the message. In fact, it says that when the Holy Spirit descended upon them, Peter did what? Continued to preach and exhort for another 30 minutes? No, it says he stopped immediately because the work was done. You see, it's not the fullness of the message or the the glory of the preacher or how great his points are. It's the Spirit of God that does the work. And so what we see here is, again, a reference to this. It doesn't matter how short or insignificant these words may be. God uses them. The Holy Spirit moves in an amazing way in Nineveh, and these people turn to Him. Now, this, to me, is a message to the people of Israel. Now, think about this. With all the advantages Israel has, Paul names them in Romans 9. Right? They were given the law, the covenants, name it one thing after another. They were given all these advantages. What do we find in the days of Jonah in Israel? wickedness a people who do not have a heart for God and a king that does not have a heart for God no matter how much it's been delivered to him the word of God and here we have the most wicked king that we know of in this day in Nineveh the kind of chief spot of wickedness in the world at that time he hears this short message from God repents immediately as far as we can tell and all the people of this wicked city repent what seems to be immediately at the revelation of even a small part of a message from God. And yet Israel, with all their advantages, sit in, sit in the land of Israel, unresponsive to the work of God. My friends, I think Jonah is a serious message uh, to the people of God, including to us as the people of God. But that brings us to our final point, which we're going to finish with today, which is on God's mercy. Look at verse 10. And there's two things we need to say about this very quickly. God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented of the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. There's enough difficulties here that we could have spent a whole sermon on this verse, like we did 2.10 last week. But I think we can get the main points here very quickly, because we have Easter coming up. Um, And it's this. It's number one, God sees their works. We need to recognize, first of all, God is a merciful God. Jonah teaches us even in spite of himself. Even if he desires not to tell them of the mercy of God, God's mercy is made evident over and over again in this book. All people in this book don't deserve the mercy 
as sons of Adam, clearly, but also they don't deserve the mercy of God by their own actions. Everyone in this story has fallen short of the glory of God because they're human beings and they're not Christ. And so, my friends, when we look at this, we see God is a merciful God. But, but notice what it says here. It speaks in anthropomorphic terms, as the Scriptures always do or often does. It says God saw their works, right? Our Heavenly Father doesn't have eyes like we do, right? He sees everything. This is language so we'll understand the revelation of God. Uh, many of the Reformers would write about this and try to explain how to understand passages like this. They would say, the Scriptures speak in such a way as that we can understand what it's revealing to us. Right? There are things said of God that uh, are given to us in common ways that we might understand it. Like this, God relented or repented of what he was going to do. Right? We see this in the Old Testament as well, that he was going to do something and then stops and doesn't do it. Does that describe God? Not really, not in one sense. Right? God is not a God of change. He's not changeable. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't gain new information. He's immutable. But this is given to us so that we can understand the conditional terms that he's giving here. To a people who repent before him and cry out for mercy, God extends mercy. That's the point that it's given here in this wording. Now let me come back really quick to some wording I mentioned earlier. Because Jonah says, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Shall be, not might be, not could be, shall be. And this is the force of the language. Nineveh is doomed, Jonah says. And then we read this, and we say in 40 days, Nineveh did not fall to destruction. That's kind of complicated. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with it? And, and what does it say of, of God that the prophecy that God gave Jonah would seem not to have come to pass in one sense? Well, it comes down to a word in the Hebrew, hapak. Uh, and it's the word that, Yon, uh, that Jonah uses here when he says that Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's an interesting word. It means literally to turn over. So you think about a garden when you get ready to plant. You turn over the soil, right? You kind of churn it up. And that often means that very thing. You're going to lay waste to the soil. You're going to churn it up. You're going to destroy a piece of land. But that's not all it means. It only means to turn over, but it can also mean to overturn in a positive sense. It's not the main meaning. Usually the, the meaning of this word means to turn over and destroy. But it can also mean to turn over and make new to make new. The word they use there is turn around. If you look at a Hebrew lexicon, one of the meanings of this word is to turn around. To turn around. Now, I'm not saying that's 100% the way it was taken. Many of the Hebrew scholars say this is a double entendre. It has two meanings. right? It means both to, it can mean to destroy or turn over in that sense, and it can mean to turn around or redeem in a sense. Now, the people of Nineveh take it to mean destroy. They realize it's a message of destruction. But as a prophetic word, maybe even against Jonah's intention, it may have meant to turn around. It might have been the promise of God because that's exactly what happened. The people hear this message and they turn around. That doesn't surprise God. We said a moment ago, God doesn't learn as we learn. He knows the end from the beginning. He sees it all, knows it all, has dealt with it from eternity past, and what we see here is it could very well be that Jonah was even against himself prophesying what he didn't want to come to pass, but it was what God was going to bring to pass. Go and preach this message to Nineveh of its seeming destruction, but God all the time working, as it's clear in this text, he's willed to do, to turn Nineveh around, if only for a time, if only for a time. 
As we close, I want to say one more thing about this because at the heart of this is the gospel message, right? Even if it's before the gospel is fully given to us. There's in this a reliance on the mercy of God in light of His judgment. That's what the gospel is. We cry out to God for His mercy in light of our understanding that we are sinners who have no hope of salvation in ourselves. But there's something else here to remember. Nineveh is saved. This wicked city is saved. There's a great awakening. Some people use the term revival. I've already explained why I don't think that's the right term. But whatever, whatever word you want to use, it's an amazing event. An amazing event. Clearly notable in the history of the scriptures, this noticeable event. And yet it doesn't change the long-term trajectory of things, does it? Assyria will still come, wreak havoc on the northern kingdom. Destroy it. Right? They're still going to return to their old ways a generation or two later. That's the thing we see over and over again, even in revivals. God may work graciously for a time, but you can't assume that's going to continue. Right? Each generation has a responsibility to teach and bring up the next generation in the admonition of the Lord. We read in the Old Testament of things like a generation arose that did not know the Lord. Right? That is heartbreaking language. We have a responsibility to be those who proclaim the grace and the judgment of God. The heart of the gospel message, that is what we are called to proclaim. And so, my friends, while there is yet time, let us get busy proclaiming it. Amen.